0: We're going to start with hello again, hey, this is a good way to start the podcast, how are you going Ryan? I'm oh, well thanks, how are you? I am good and I am super, super excited to share this interview with our listeners because this interview is, man, it's phenomenal.
1: What an inspiring fellow, this guy made me want to be a better person.
0: I know, and he's so young, so we yeah. should say his name, I guess, shouldn't yes. we? <laughs> Just to keep the suspense yes. a little bit longer. We have interviewed this incredible guy called Corey Tutt, and if you haven't heard of Corey, I suggest you go away right now, pause, and look up Corey, and look up Deadly Science in particular, which is this um, not-for-profit prof- not organisation that Corey set up a few years ago.
1: Yeah, it was all about sending books to Central Australia, to Aboriginal Australian communities, And making sure that they have access to knowledge, something so simple, but such an important idea he saw needed to happen, he just went and did it.
0: And it's the way he tells the story, I think that just, it's so powerful. Like from the get-go, when we ask our opening question, tell us uh, a defining moment in your life. And he launches into this story, I'm not going to spoil it, but honestly, like we didn't know where to go from that answer. I think we kind of both just sat there and went, Oh my goodness, how do we how do we keep I don't know, how do we keep talking? And how's this person just continued on with his life and his purpose? And I feel that like maybe that is the central thing, right? He's just gone, well, I have such a clear purpose and vision. I know I'm not here for a long time, so I'm here to make the best, to do the best that I can and yeah. far out. Like he's one. Young Australian of the Year for New South Wales in 2020, just received the 2021 Australian Museum Eureka STEM Inclusion Prize. Um, they get so many donations for Deadly Science of Science Resources and sends them off to schools. He, I just I don't know. He's raised more than thirty three thousand to purchase books and equipment. Um, it's amazing. Like it's just it's absolutely incredible. Yeah,
1: he's an inspiring human. He's someone living by his values and. Just a great storyteller.
0: Yeah, Which, an, an yeah. amazing storyteller. Makes
1: this episode really exciting.
0: Yeah, we could listen to him forever. So please do. Please just yeah. sit down with a cup of tea and listen to this guy because amazing.
1: Yeah, Corey Tutt on the Environmental Heroes podcast. Local environment heroes saving the trees so here
0: and you, the bees Corey, so much and doing it daily. and thank you for having me. It's great. We're very excited to have you. We have to ask, um, first of all, have you ever been to Canberra?
2: I have been to Canberra multiple times. Um, my most recent um, trip to Canberra was for the Australian of the Year Awards in 2020.
0: That's a, that's a pretty good excuse to come down to Canberra. We're going yeah. to get into talking about that in a second. But first of all, our opening question that we ask all of our guests has there been a defining moment in your life where you've looked at the world and thought something needs to change now?
2: Yeah, um, I think the most defining moment for me is I was a student at Bulleye Public School and um, I was eight years old and I, I used to sort of run to school with um, with the girl that sat next to me in class and, um, and her best friend. And um, for me, it was it was really tough because we we were great friends and and my sister was friends with her older brother. And, um, one, one day um, she got hit by a car and she was tragically killed, um, happened in front of my sister and I, um, because we used to walk along the road together and, um, into the schoolyard. But I think that was the defining moment in my life where I think that changed me. Um, and, and, and in some ways it scarred me, but it, that moment made me an empathetic person. Um, I think that I appreciate that life is very short. Then I would say that um, ever since there's been moments where I've just been reminded on, on how precious and short life is. Um, I think that the moment um, I was a zookeeper and I lost my best friend to suicide was again, another moment um, when I'd lost sort of animals that I was looking after or or things that happened, um, like the bushfires, I think that, that, that deeply affected me and, and, and affects, you know, the environment, it affects, it affects everything that is around you and you have a new appreciation. And for me, I, when I think about life and I think about people, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard not to hold grudges in the sense of people do some pretty stupid stuff or like nasty stuff to each other. Um, But I think that, you know, now being a charity founder, I'm older, um, I'm more patient, I'm more tolerant, but I have a greater appreciation more than ever that life is just very, very short. So we should be making the most of it to make tomorrow's better for other people
0: that's amazing that's um that's incredibly profound how do you hold that how do you hold that empathy and that um you know that acknowledgement that life is short with just wanting to get on and and do things and moving on like how do you not get sucked into like you could have easily got sucked into this is all really hard and really heavy but you've used it as motivation to really power you forward
2: and it's an endless spiral, you know. Once you once you get in that, like my my mother was, um, you know, is was a single mom, um, victim of abuse her whole life. But you know, she she overcome all those things. Um, so you know, I'm I'm inherently strong from my genes and my people. Um, and I think that the the thing that the thing that bothers me a little bit is that it's so easy to get sucked in with the negativity and, you know, I walk outside of my place in Burupai country and I can, I can see a koala in a tree or I can see a blue tongue lizard, or, you know, I can, I can see those things that I enjoy and, you know, I'd rather focus on those things than, than the things that, you know, someone's stealing my car park at Coles, you know, like whatever, like it doesn't matter. Um, because really it's just a moment in time. And if I use my moments to make tomorrow's better for other people, then I've utilized my time properly.
1: Yeah, it's such a strong choice, and such a—it's almost the harder choice to make, isn't it? In the situation, it's a lot easier to go the other way. But um, really, when we're talking about building a better world for the future, and this podcast very much about ensuring our environment is still healthy in the future, then every little choice we make is so important.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, and you know, as a as a young kid, um, you know, being a, I'm an Aboriginal man as well, but you know, coming from a low socioeconomic family, there's There's quite a lot of, um, you know, predetermined biases on, on intelligence, um, on abilities. And I was probably one of those kids that was probably a bit too smart for their own good. And I think that I, I struggled a bit with my education because, you know, I didn't really understand why, you know, we weren't talking to Aboriginal people about cultural burning, we were burning just in a straight line with kerosene. I didn't really understand the fact that we weren't, you know, back then we weren't talking to the first people of this continent that had lived here for over 65,000 plus years about sustainability, about sustainable fishing practices, about bush medicine. Um, You know, I I still don't quite understand that, like, we can walk down an aisle in the shopping centre and we can see the world's oldest bush medicine and tea tree oil, but yet there's no, no acknowledgement from big supermarkets or or anyone about where it comes from or who invented it or why we use it. It's, um, you know, and that's in that's called Burralum in Bundjalung country, and that's the tea tree oil. But like, for me, I think that you know sometimes when we're really really lucky, the lessons of the past can be the answers for the future. Um, and some of those things are looking after country, sustainability, taking what you need. Um, I think the, the biggest, you know, pandemic for humanity has been greed. Yeah. Have you seen,
1: have you think it's begun to shift at all in Australia yet?
2: I think so. I think there's more acknowledgement of first peoples and, and more acknowledgement of our science. And, and because that's happening. We're having some difficult conversations. And though, and sometimes change starts with the things you don't want to hear, you know. And I think that in Australia, we're starting to have some honest conversations about what's been happening to my people and our people for, you know, hundreds of years. And we're starting to say, well, you know what, that's not okay. It's not okay to define someone's life based on their race, sexuality or gender. That's not all right let's base it on their merits. Let's base it on what they do in the community. And I think that that's really important.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, What, what got you interested in science? Like, is there a moment where you went, you know what, science is what I, is, is really my jam?
2: Well, I, I was always interested in science. I was always interested in the, the weird and wonderful animals that I used to find in my backyard. And and out and about as well and in the schoolyard and, you know, wherever I spent my time. Like most of my afternoons were spent um, around the front garden and the back garden or on the farm picking up lizards and, and snakes and 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 bugs and mice and you name it. Um, and you know, I always knew that I wanted to be like a Harry Butler because Harry Butler was um Harry Butler and Harold Coggle were my heroes growing up because my grandfather used to go to Salvation Army's a lot, and he used to get books from the salvos and and videos. Um, and we had a VHS player when I was a kid, and I used to watch a lot of Harry Butler documentaries. I think um, it was I think it was three o'clock on a Saturday. They used to play Harry Butler's documentaries on Channel Nine, and I used to go and watch it. And I used to pretend I was Harry Butler afterwards um, as a kid. And and even, even when I became like, you know, even though I, I wanted to become a zookeeper and, and those barriers were put up um, from my, from some of my teachers, not all of them, um, but...
0: What, what sort of barriers?
2: Well, just like, you know, my career advisor told me that, you know, you should stick to a trade or you're probably going to end up in jail or worse, because I see kids like you all the time. And... You know that's that's no that's not to begrudge him or like you know he he's a phenomenal educator, and I think that the, those words were said to me to be to be cruel, but also to inspire me to do more with my life. Um, so I don't I don't hold any like uh, ill feeling towards that career advisor, but that's part of my story because I was so determined to become a zookeeper. I left school at sixteen. And went 3,885 kilometres from my home to a place called Boy Brook to achieve my dream. So I've always been pretty determined. Um, you know, if I really want to do something, if I really want to put my mind to it, I'll do it. Um, and it's it's part of, you know, not like I've always had a desire to, you know, I don't have children yet, but I've always had a desire to be be a father that I never had or own a house because my family didn't own a house until when I was older, um, you know, to, to grow up and my children have a safe bed to sleep in because the first part of my life, I was sleeping on a mattress with my sister. So, you know, I, I never wanted that life for my future. So I was always driven. Um, and I I could never, it wasn't that I was stubborn, but I could never take, Um, if I knew I was capable of saying, I wouldn't take a backwards step. I would always take it head on. And, um, and as you know, and all the things that happened along the way, like, you know, when Jason died, my, my mate died and that was really hard because I thought I'd experienced everything as an 18 year old. I thought, you know, I've, I've experienced trauma at a young age. I'm seven foot tall and bulletproof, but that, that broke me, um, you know and it and it, i really struggled with it and it's um you know i end up doing alpaca shearing for a bit um went around australia and new zealand sharing alpacas and and you know the first time i sheared an alpaca right on my cheekbone like as i'm pointing to you but i don't know if this will be in video but um it be in audio so you can on my left side of my face um the like I got head by an alpaca the first one and it was masculine it named Pikachu, which is a pretty um scary sort of alpaca name, but um it broke my cheekbone. Um can, like shattered my cheekbone. And um I remember, you know, that was the moment where I was pretty broken and it was like, Well, I've got a choice. I can keep shearing or I can, you know, fold it all in and and give up and I chose to keep shearing and you know, I, I showed how tough I was multiple times when I was shearing because I was, and that's, that's how I learned I was a resilient person because I didn't think I was resilient at all. Um, you know, I had a dorper run into my shin bone and ca- crack my shin bone when I was shearing. Um, you know, I got injured multiple times and I kept working and I worked really, really hard. And that was probably a lack of self-perseverance. But um, I guess that the shearing was my sort of healing too to get back to a, a semi normal and and by semi normal I was never the same after that it was another life changing moment that made me who I am do you still like our packers? oh i love our packers when i see them i always look at their tag because i know i know where they come from when i see their tag and and i never liked our packers when i started shearing them but i actually appreciate them with the, like as an animal and there's something gentle about them you know, I know people sort of look at them when they spit. But if you see a, a herd of alpacas on a hill or on a farm, they're just at peace. You know, they're either sitting down or they're eating or, you know, they. there's not much drama going on unless it's shearing time. That's when it's probably they're in a, they're getting a bit annoyed. But, you know, I, I still drive past today. And even, you know, 10 years after, like it's probably, oh, it's not 10 years, about nine years after I I stop sharing full time my you know i I still drive past my fiance, or if i see an alpaca or people still tagging me in alpaca things on social media um because it was such a big part of my life and 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 still still today like i the man i shared with was coming to my wedding um that got cancelled in july because you know he was my unofficial counselor i had to be stuck in a car with him for 12 hours and you know, I was forced as an, as an 18 year old kid to um, describe to him how I was feeling and what I was feeling. And, you know, although it's, you know, 2012 and 2010 um, seems like a really long time ago now, it's, um, it was, you know, it was a really special couple of years in my life. And I, and I think that when I'm an old man, and I'm telling my grandkids about the time I sheared our Packers. I think I'm going to look at it very front fondly because I went from Rockhampton to Handoff in Adelaide to New Zealand, um, shearing our Packers, working really, really hard. But I also, I gained a father figure that I never thought that I would ever have.
1: Um, you're the CEO of Deadly Science. Can you tell us a little bit about the organisation, Deadly Science, and your journey with the organisation?
2: Well, you're not going to die, um, but um, deadly is, is a cool connotation um, describing something as awesome or cool in, in Aboriginal world, in the mob world. Um, so that's what deadly science stands for. Is like, it's like cool science, right? But how I founded deadly science was another interesting story. As I, um, I went and worked, after I gave up shearing, I went and worked for the RSPCA, and I worked as an animal attendant. And again, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty determined individual when like, I, I remember there was a girl that I quite liked at the RSPCA and she used to work there and um, I was on a contract. So I was like, I'd applied for the job and it and was like a contractor. So I had things like three months to, to prove to the RSPCA that they could, keep me on. So I was just determined to be the best animal attendant I could be. So I could I end up getting a contract, but I left a couple of months after. Um because it kind of, you know, one of the things was you don't date people you work with or like you you know, once you do that, it's pretty awkward if it ends badly or, you know, if things don't work out the way you planned. And um I went to a place in Ingleside, which was called the Animal Welfare League, which is our kind of rival. So I worked there and um I think that I was always doing a form of deadly science. So when, when mob used to come into the both shelters, you know, I was always showing them around the dogs. I was always like showing them, teaching them things. And same as when I was at the zoo, but then I ended up, I decided that I wanted to do more with my life again. So it was one of these moments where I was like, I wasn't quite content with being an animal attendant or being a dog rehabilitator or a manager or whatever. I was just like, you know, I really wanted to go away and, and try something different. So I started studying and I did the animal technology course at TAFE, which was um for, to become an animal technician. And then I started learning about genetics and I started learning about science and research. And I worked in that job for a while, but then I started at the University of Sydney as an animal technician. And I just had this desire to you know connect with some of my people my Gamilaroi people and 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 kids in Redfern and Waterloo where I was working because I'd see I'd see them when I was catching the bus to to work and I would be like no, know all these kids have so much potential um, even more so than what I probably had and you know I just started yarning with them and I I sort of went to a like a program that was running um from the A mentoring program which was like a careers day and I would go to the careers day, and there was just no science. There was no science for these kids at all. Um, and I figured that if I could be the person that I probably needed when I was a kid, when I was that age and being told that I should stick to a trade, then I think it would be a good way to spend my time, rather than going out and partying or, you know, doing all that stuff. So I started volunteering and I started yarning with these kids and. AIM kind of moved on from that program, so I still kept going to the same spot, and the kids kept turning up, because we would talk about space stations, we would talk about, you know, microorganisms, I would pull out my iPad and I would show them photos of the research that the researchers were doing in the the animal labs, and, and like, you know, the cool genetics and stuff like that, that, you know, is being done, because you know, I, d- I just, we just yarned about science. So it was like our own unofficial Dr. Carl podcast every Friday. And then one of the kids said to me, well, how come, you know, if you're telling me I can do science and you did that or, that all, or, how did you get into it? And I wish that I was given books when I was a kid because if I had books when I was a kid, I would know as much as you do. Uh, and I was like, well, that's a, that's a great idea. And I think all great ideas start with, you know, a light bulb moment such as that. And um, I did what most weird people do. And I started Googling remote schools and started the Googling the communities where these kids come from. And and I found, you know, one school that just had like as little as 15 books in its whole school. And I, you know, that you're, um, you know, you've gone a bit crazy when you drop a thousand bucks at Dimmicks, take a thousand bucks out of your savings When you're earning 60k a year and you drop a thousand bucks over the counter, and I started packing these books and sending these books, but you know, and that's how Deadly Science was born. Um, But then, were they
0: were they a particular genre, like science books that you were buying? Science books,
2: anything, anything that had knowledge, um, you know. And then I and Indigenous books as well because it was important that we told the stories of our people. And um, you know, when when I started Deadly Science, it had its own, I guess you know, it had its own sort of complications that came with that because I was working as an animal technician. I was working extra hours, um, more hours than what I was taking off to go and talk to these kids at 1pm on a Friday. Um, and I wasn't getting paid any extra for it, but it was like work started not going so great for me um, because I was putting all this energy into posting these books and, um, and I end up taking up a second job so I could afford to go to Dimmick's on a Thursday night to buy all these books. Um, I even put a bin, a book bin, inside the physics building at Sydney Uni, and and then you know I got invited um, by the university to to basically go and speak at this Healing Our Spirit um, festival for Aboriginal people from around the world. Um, and I just thought I was going as an attendee. Like I just I didn't think that you know that the, the speaker wouldn't turn up and then they just say to me, Hey, can you go up and talk about deadly science? So I ended up and it was like the first time I'd done sort of any public speaking apart from being a zookeeper. And I spoke in front of 400 people from around the world about the importance of science and deadly science. And, and from that moment, it was kind of weird for me because I, the manager I had at, at the uni was being quite nasty to me in the sense of like I got invited to speak at this Healing Our Spirit Festival and it was I was making a few mistakes at work because I was just overtired and I was working two jobs and you know I'd i miss sex and mouse here and there Um and I'd you know I'd, I'd just stuff up and it wasn't reg like it wasn't totally regular but it was you know regular enough that You know, and and at the time, my partner had broken up me as well because I was, you know, I was struggling a little bit as well, and I was very honest about it. I said to my manager, I was struggling, but somehow I got more responsibility. Is that you know? um, And she actually taught me a lot about what it is to be a good people manager. Um, So I don't don't hate her or anything, but you know, it was said to me that you know, going to healing our spirit was a reward um, for your you know reward, but I'm like, no, it was it was because I'm an Indigenous person and my employer said I could go to that event, um, which was, um, it was really hard to take and there was a few comments here and there about my heritage and, and what I was doing outside of work and I decided that, you know, I'd rather be unemployed doing deadly science than working for someone that doesn't appreciate what I'm doing outside of work. Um, how how but, long
0: ago was this?
2: Oh, this is like... Three uh, years ago now, yeah. and um, I ended up resigning, and I started working at the Matilda Centre, which the Matilda Matilda Centre was like a research hub um, at the University of Sydney, and it was it was just incredibly deadly. I loved it. Um, I was learning about crystal methamphetamine and how it affects people, and and I started writing like calm reduction um, materials, and I quit my second job, and I'd started fund me and. Before I'd started the Matilda Centre, like literally a, a couple of weeks before, I had this email, you've been nominated for Young Australian of the Year. And I, I literally fell off my chair. I was like, holy crap. Like this is, sorry for saying holy crap. But um, <laughs> it was like, oh my God, this is a moment for me. Like I'm, you know, I'm very, very lucky to, to be in this position. But no one, except for my direct manager, no one at my workplace pre- like congratulated me or anything like that. Um, they were treating me pretty badly because I'd resigned. Um and I was sort of the last couple of weeks before I was gonna go to my new job. And I um I started my new job at Matilda Center and it was like it was so great because everyone was tri- like everyone was saying hello to you. Like they they loved like they loved the fact I was joining their team. How are you? Let's go for coffee, let's do this, let's do that. And um I absolutely loved that workplace. I I wanted to stay forever and um but I couldn't because all this um, deadly science was kicking off. And second weekend, I win Young Australian of the Year for New South Wales. Um, and I decided to bring my mum to that award ceremony because I was like, you know, I think my mum deserves to see her kid do well. And sure enough, I've given her enough grey hairs over the years. And um, and I Gladys, um, I don't know if we can talk about Gladys, it's probably been inappropriate now. But Gladys... Um, reads my name out and it's like, I say to my mum, here, this is yours uh, on a roll. And, um, if literally like within a millisecond of me doing that, my name gets read out again. And it's like, and the young Australian for New South Wales is Corey Tut. And it's like, from that moment, I didn't see my partner or my mum for the rest of the night, the starters, um, cause I was just blown away. And um, it was a bit of a blur, but um, from that moment, I treated it as a responsibility. as a responsibility to take it to all the kids I've been working with, the the books I've been sending, the everything that I was doing. I wanted to make sure that that award was visible to the kids that I was working with. Um, whether putting a bit of gaffer tape over my name and taking my award out to students and letting them hold it and letting them feel it, um, you know, or it's just saying, look, I'm a normal person. <laughs> I'm a normal person. It's been for a lot, but I'm a normal person who won this award for being a good person. And if that helps you become a good person and become a deadly person, then I'm going to support you in whatever you want to do to follow your passions. But the key ingredient is being a deadly person first.
0: That's so cool. I'm, um, I'm really intrigued with the line you said that you felt really lucky to win it. I mean, everything you've just spoken about to us the past 20 minutes, like, you're an incredibly hard worker. Like, I don't think this is luck. I think this is, I mean, there's always a bit of luck, but I think your dedication, the fact you took up a second job so you could pay for going to DIMICS every Thursday night, like, this is this is super impressive.
2: Well, yeah, I guess I... I didn't want kids in Australia to not grow up without STEM or science or resources. And I guess, you know, the, it's derived from the fact that, you know, my father left my mum when I was two or my mum left my father and I never saw him again. So I never got to, I never got to have a dad that was my biological dad or like, you know, go and you know play catch with your father in the backyard or go for bushwalks or, or anything like that. So, and I know that a lot of my kids don't have that either. So I was just really—I just think that it was um, for me. I I like to be as open as honest with everyone and and give parts myself that, you know, probably I would have kept private. But you know, for me, it's it's important that everyone, you know, they see themselves in the picture of STEM and science. And you know, sometimes the only images we see are of yeah Albert Einsteins, your yeah, Thomas Edisons, or You know, you're great inventors and a lot of our Nobel laureates, you know, are of the same demographic, you know, older white Caucasian men, which there is nothing, there's nothing wrong with that in the sense of like, there's nothing wrong with anyone being of any race or sex, but when those images dominate STEM and they dominate the images that kids are seeing and kids are from minority backgrounds, then you you remove the hope from science, and you remove yeah. freedom from education. So we yeah. need more deadly black fellas wearing lab coats. We need more deadly women wearing lab coats. We need people with different um, you know different views and different backgrounds um, wearing lab coats. As long as they're not as long as that hypothesis is that they're a good person first, then it doesn't matter who's wearing the lab coat. But we need to have an even share of women. Um, you know, people of color, minorities, you know, being part of this thing called STEM.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You went on from um, like the Young Australian of the Year. You've won so many other awards like the Indigenous STEM Champion, AMP Tomorrow Maker, ABC Trailblazer, um, most rec- recently the Eureka Prize, um, the Human Rights Hero. Which one of these awards would be your favorite?
2: Um. Well, the Eureka the Eureka Award is, is significant. I don't I don't see these as much as achievements as more responsibility. Um and their responsibility to for me to share with the young people, like I said, and, and the next generation of kids are coming through because I think, you know, if if forgive me if I'm mistaken, but we're all of the age where we remember holding the Olympic torch, you know? Um, as a kid, you know, I remember that I was I was in Ostermere, and the Olympic torch went past and I got to take my photo of it and hold it. And that was a really special moment for me. But I'd never met an Australian of the year. Um, I'd never met an Australian of the year until I was nominated for one. So when I think back to those moments and how special that was for me and I realise that every time I speak to a young person or I speak to an older person that that Olympic torch moment might be happening for them right there. And then you're meeting someone who started a charity from scratch that, you know, that previously probably might not be accessible because if I was in it for the money and the fame, I would have, I would have promoted myself a lot more. But the thing is, is that, Like if I meet someone on the street and they say g'day and they say that they really love my work, then I'll talk to them for 10 minutes (laughs) Um, because that's 10 minutes that they're going to remember potentially for the rest of their lives. And if if this thing called deadly science gets bigger and my profile gets bigger, then that's something that they'll share with their kids or their grandkids. And then maybe their grandkids or their kids go, you know, I want to take up science and I want to. You know, I want to do it against the odds and if, you know, things aren't working out for me, well, Corey did it, so why can't I? Um, And and that's what the responsibility is. So even if I never win another award again, I'm going to be making sure that with every ounce of energy that I have, that I have left, that I'm going to um, make sure that every single person gets to experience it.
1: Uh, what is in the future for deadly science then uh, what's your
2: plan um what's my plan for deadly science I I really want to translate stem resources into language I want to um, I want to I want to basically um, you know not change what deadly science does because it's great but I want to expand it I want kids to to understand that you know with um like i want the resource to be accessible but i want to i want to expand on it i want to keep it going um i want to do you know just i just want to keep keep it all going and um build this into a charity that one day one of my deadly scientists is sitting in the seat that i am in now getting interviewed by this deadly podcast um (laughs) because that's the way it should be
1: yeah it's amazing how important books are to you when you're young and learning it's not like I guess you can't feel that way about an app or a website my favorite books when I was young I would read them over and over again and take them with me everywhere it's super important and what you're doing is such incredible work and even as you know we seem to replace books with digital uh, resources but there's nothing more important for a child's learning than the physical book in my opinion
2: yeah for sure and you know books change lives and education education changes lives um and you know and it changed my life so there's no excuse that it can't change someone else's
1: yeah um and just before we get into our hero questions i just wanted to ask you about your most recent book the first scientists deadly inventions and innovations from australia's first peoples why did you want to write this book
2: because i was i've sent over twenty thousand resources off to remote schools and I really wanted to create something that kids everywhere, non-Indigenous, Indigenous, could could see themselves in the book and see whose land that they're on, you know. I think that that's really um, important. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to create a First Nations science book because, yes, there is literature out there that does it. Um, and, like, it's important. And I just think it's it's so... It's so important for kids to be able to see themselves in the picture. Beautiful. You mentioned
0: you did mention it early. You mentioned earlier on um, that when you were buying books for kids, you were looking for Indigenous books to send. And I, and I was thinking then, I wondered if you know, imagine if you'd had your book available a couple of years ago, like it definitely would have been one of the package, right?
2: Yes and no. It's actually, it'd be quite unethical of me to buy my book through Deadly Sciences Fund. True, true. um, Apart
0: from that, the concept, the concept of the book.
2: (laughs) Yeah, the concept of the book. Like I wish that the concept of the book did exist. And I I hope that, you know, my book inspires more people to write books like that Um, and do it properly. Engage community elders, um, you know, don't, like not to, this book's not to profit off. It's a book to give to the next generation. So even if it sold one copy, I would have been stoked because if it inspires a deadly kid to go and take up science and or a non-Indigenous kid to go and ask an elder a question, you know, about their culture and where they're from, you know, then that is a book that is that has served its purpose.
0: So what's what's the if you had one book that is that goes out to every school that you want to include in every pack? What's that one book for you that is really important to hand out to everyone?
2: It's a really good question because I think there's so many books. Um, but, you know, one, one book in particular is, um, you know, is Thomas May's books because I really think it's important we learn about the history of, of Australia and where we come from and, and we ask the questions because kids are the best scientists. So any book that I put in that's going to get kids asking questions and asking why, how, what? Um, I think that's that's served its purpose as a book, and I think that that's what we need to do. Because you know, whether it's a reptile book or it's a it's a Thomas Mayer book or it's a you know it, it's a book by Carly Noon or, or whoever, as long as it's getting kids asking questions and reflecting, then I think it's I think it's a book that deserves to go on the box.
0: Yeah, awesome exhausting for a parent to have that constant why question handed to them I've got a 10 year old who's always saying why and what about this and what about this and I don't know the answer so then we spend hours going and finding the answer which is part of the joy right
2: part of the joy and it's something we lose as adults I mean you know you got to remember information has never been cheaper um, when we were kids it was you go to a library you find that you identify the book in with the um, you know, with it, with its alphabet and you find it probably hastily, t- like tucked into the corner of the library um, with no help on where to find it. Um, <laughs> and you pull it out and then you you borrow it and then you, you go to the page and you find the information that way. But now, um, thanks to these little things in our hands, phones, um, information's never been cheaper, which means that the incorrect information has never been more accessible than it is at this point in time. So for me, books are still important. They're still important for kids. Books have critique. They have critical thinking that goes into what makes the book. So a book over a blog post any day of the week um, is more accurate because it's been critiqued and edited
1: Yeah, and like you say, there's endless information out there, but really you still need to know how to ask the right questions, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's why we shouldn't be so quick to phase out a library. Um, And there's a joy and a wonder of a library as well. It's generally a quiet place. Generally has a groovy seat or a cushion where you can sit down and read a book. Um, For me, there there was always a PlayStation 2 in the corner of my local library and I loved it because... I would go there and I'd spend a bit of time there as a teenager and um, you had a maximum of half an hour and it used to cost like five bucks to play it for half an hour, which is a rip off. But um, I think that this stuff is just really important. And, you know, we we had Halloween last night and I'm not a big fan of Halloween, but God, it was nice to see everyone together and having a good time.
1: Julie, it's about time I think that we gave Corey our
2: hero question.
1: Well,
0: okay. I'm I'm super pumped for the first question because as I say to you, some, not all, maybe some, quite a lot, and I guess, like, I want you to be this first, uh, the first question. So the first question, congratulations, you've just been elected president of the world. Yay. Um, what's the one change you try to implement first?
2: I want to make a Donald Trump joke, but I don't think it's appropriate. It's easy do whatever you'd like. <laughs> No, I think the one change that I would make um, to the world currently, and it's it's twenty twenty thirty, I believe, so there's flying cars all around us, um, is I would I would limit the amount of space travel that we're doing um, till we fix up what's happening on Earth, and and by fix up what's happening at Earth, making sure people are kind to each other online, they're not being predators, um, ensuring that that people can enjoy life and national parks and and animals and and make sure that we look after this planet so we have things to enjoy. Um, you know, I don't want to be here in 50 years time and it's too hot to leave my house. I think that, you know, we should be working on those things to, to make it, you know, better for tomorrow. And um, that's kind of the things I'd work on. And I would limit the the amount of satellites we're sending into the sky, one, because I want to preserve the cultural stories of astronomy. Um, If we have too many satellites in the sky, they will interfere with how we see the stars. And I think if we look at the stars and we wonder, it gives us a bit of hope because it's something we do not understand. But if there's too many satellites up there, then we lose the hope and wonder of the sky. Mm that's beautiful and it doesn't matter if you want to yeah if you don't want to if you want to download finding nemo faster in in like and download it in like 1.2 seconds instead of five seconds and that's what your goal is then you need to have some reassessments of what you would like to do with your life because there's a whole world out there full of nature and beauty that we are just neglecting just to download something faster
0: Yeah. yeah yeah
1: Um, talk to us more about 2030, Corey. You mentioned flying cars. What else do you see around you in uh, 2030?
2: I think I, um, I'd like to see in 20, 2032, me stepping down as CEO of Deadly Science, one of my kids picking up. You know, from that, maybe it happens sooner than that. Um, maybe I've written a few more books. Um, maybe I'm a father myself. You know, I think that I would like to end educational poverty in Australia. I want to see children in Australia having the same resources um, as everyone else. And, you know, and if we can do that, we can look back on history and say this is a black mark that we had kids in Australia growing up with with not equal education and and resources. And we can say, okay, we've learned from it. Um, That's where I would like to be.
0: Yeah, awesome. Um, who are your environmental heroes?
2: That's a very, very good question. Um, my first environmental hero is Maddie Diamond, um, who is the Young Australian of the Year for ACT, very good friend of mine. Love Maddie. She's the best. My second would be Sue Lennox, um, who is a massive, she's also a good friend of mine, Senior Australian of the Year for New South Wales. Um, Sue's just amazing. She's just got such a love the environment around her and and I think she's deadly
1: um, what's your hot tip for our listeners for being more environmentally friendly or aware
2: I think if you if you're around and you see rubbish pick it up if you see um, you know if you see someone taking too many fish just say to them hey is that enough for you you know don't take too many fish um, take what you need um, I would say just be present be observant. Um, maybe get off your phone a little bit and and I'll maybe take some of my own advice on that and go and enjoy a bushwalk, go and enjoy the, the birds chirping and, you know, and enjoy life because life is very, very short and we only have a small amount of time on this earth and that we should be spending it being kind to each other, not hating each other.
0: Yeah, totally. Um. Our last question might be something to do with what you've just said. Um, what's your final, like a slogan, a quote or a mantra or even a key message that you want to leave our listeners with?
2: There's one I've used way too much, but science equals hope and education is freedom. And, you know, the footprints that we leave today are generally in the direction that we're going, but they they disappear with time. So make sure you're going in the right direction.
1: Local environment Heroes Saving the trees And the bees And doing it daily